Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, uh, your word. um, We read in Hebrews that it uh, pierces, it divides us, it provokes us, it exposes us. And the only way that we can handle such piercing, such discomfort, um, such sometimes awkward vulnerability is to understand that we have uh, a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let us together as the church uh, approach the throne of grace with confidence this morning that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Uh, A general contractor in Massachusetts took... uh, the, took a bid to renovate a house, but after doing that, he was eventually fired by the homeowners. And so the general contractor took the homeowners to court, citing a breach of contract. They have told them or him that he should do this and be paid such and such, and they're refusing to honor that. However, in court, not only did the contractor lose the suit, but the homeowners then filed a countersuit, and the contractor was in fact held liable of breach of contract. He was the one in the wrong, and he was ordered to pay over $350,000 to the homeowners that he previously tried to discredit. And as we've been working through the book of Luke, and as Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem, we are beginning a portion of Luke's narrative where for the next three weeks for us, as we sit in it, Jesus is going to be faced with three challenges from at least four different types of religious leaders inside of Jerusalem. Challenges that attempt, like this uh, contractor, to discredit, to trap Jesus, to, to show that he is worthless, that he is the one in violation of the law, only to find at the end of each of these challenges that they themselves are the ones discredited and in trouble. And in fact, these men's attempt to take Jesus to court ends even more miserably than that Massachusetts contractor. But their loss is our gain. For not only do we get to see Jesus answer questions and challenges, perhaps questions and challenges that you yourself have had, but we actually get to see their hearts exposed. And so my prayer is, as we spend these three weeks together, kind of questioning Jesus, that we get to see the truths of the gospel and we respond with repentance and sincere faith instead of obstinate, arrogant rebellion. And we're learn many things in these next three weeks. I'm excited for it. If you know people who are questioning Christianity, who are seeking uh, Jesus, this is a great three weeks to invite them to. You probably missed week one because you're here, but go ahead and text them. It's a long sermon today. They'll have plenty of time. Um, uh, and, and so you could go ahead and invite them here and we're gonna learn all sorts of things. But one thing we're going to learn every step of the way is that there's nothing more natural to the human heart than to challenge and resist initially the claims of Jesus. If you're not a Christian in here today, I imagine that part of the reason why you view yourself as not being a Christian is that you have questions unanswered. There's some proof, some logic, some realities that you would like to see Jesus overcome. That's not unique. So too do these Pharisees. Next week, we see it from the scribes. The following week, from the Sadducees. If you are a Christian, many of us also wrestle to understand Jesus' authority. There are clear commands given in Scripture to 
worship Jesus. And Jesus alone did not submit our lives to idols, to share his gospel openly, to help one another follow Jesus, to place our lives in continual submission to him. But we often like to say that was good for them, but not for me. I can draw clearer lines. Jesus gets Sunday morning, maybe Tuesday night, perhaps a discipleship group. But other than that, this is my life. This is my authority. Authority, as we saw today in the passage Paul just read, is of central importance. In verse 2, Jesus is called to answer the question that many of us have asked Jesus or asked our boss or our spouse or even our kids, what gives you the right? Who made you king? The religious officials want to know by what or by whom Jesus has authority. What makes him the boss? But by the end of this text, we'll see that it is not Jesus who must justify his relationship to authority, but it is all of us who must justify our relationship to Jesus, who is the authority. And that's our main point this morning. Our main point is this, is that Jesus is the universal authority, and he is the single cornerstone. The universal authority and the single cornerstone. In other words, Jesus's authority is like gravity. You don't need to acknowledge it. You don't need to have read a textbook regarding it to feel its weight. It is implicit to those who have been created by Jesus. And we're going to see this in three ways today. We're going to see first the problem of authority. Then we're going to see second the problem with authority. And thirdly, we're going to see why you need prepositions. No, thirdly, we're going to see people under authority. We see the problem of authority, the problem with authority, and people under authority. And you may have heard the legend that surrounds Bishop Nicholas of Myra, right? Perhaps more commonly known as St. Nicholas, known for his generosity, gift-giving, often called Santa Claus, But did you know there's another legend that's well-reported about St. Nicholas? In 325 AD, at the Council of Nicaea, a group of Orthodox gospel-preaching pastors all assembled for the trial of a man named Arius. Arius was being tried for heresy, for he himself did not believe that Jesus was true God of true God, as the Nicene Creed goes on to state. So he didn't think that Jesus was as much God as God the Father. But not only did he not believe that, he was actively teaching that Jesus was less divine than the Father. And so tensions were high, because if we lose the divinity of Jesus Christ, we lose not the branch we sit on, not the tree that grows, but we lose the reality of anything growing out of anything ever. And so while Arius was defending his unorthodox views, it's reported that jolly old St. Nicholas rose up out of his chair, walked up to Arius, and punched him straight in the face. And while no fists were thrown in today's passage, the way in which these religious officials approach Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, is far more scandalous than St. Nick walking up and striking Arius in his defense, or any of you, please don't, coming up and striking me while I preach. But as Luke gives the context here, this is how brash 
this challenge is. You'll notice in the first few verses, Jesus was in the middle of teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Jesus was in the act of sharing the good news of God as interpreted with Christ at the center. And these chief priests and elders took that as a great invitation to interrupt and to challenge. You see, what offended Nicholas was a perversion of the gospel. But what offended these religious officials was the person and the preaching of the true gospel. And their question betrays their disgust in verse two, where they say this, they say, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? And this is our first point this morning. This is the problem of authority. The problem of authority. And you may recall, um, I believe it was after President Trump's election, there's a cultural phenomenon where people tweeted and got bumper stickers that said, hashtag, not my president. And the idea was that whether you saw President Trump's election as illegitimate or you saw his personality as unfit for authority, that if they could just voice their dissent and say, not my president, that they would not have to obey him, not have to cede any sense of authority to him, not have to pay any heed or listen to him. What these men are doing in the first century is no different than the challenges of authority we have today. In essence, they might have well have tweeted out on stone tablets, hashtag, not my rabbi. This Jesus is not my authority. Now, if you're a curious Christian or a new Christian or a non-Christian, this question, by what and by whom do you have authority, is not an illegitimate question. It's actually an important question. In fact, true Christian peace, true spiritual peace, depends on you being able to answer that question If you had a terminal illness and you walk up to me today and I said, good news, you're cured, your first response would be, by what evidence? How do I know I'm cured? How do I know I have this on, a phrase we often use, good authority? More so, if I were to say to you, if your televangelist preacher were to say to you, if Jesus Christ were to say to you, your sins are forgiven, Anyone who has any sort of conviction of sin or a reality of disharmony between you and God or a fear of damnation might want to say, how do I know? By whose authority do I know that I no longer stand condemned, that I've been brought from death to life? You see, the gospel is a word of authority. It comes and it speaks to us from a position of power, and it does not boast more than it can fulfill. Jesus is able, with authority, not only to preach good news, any of you can preach good news, but actually to provide good news, to be true to his word. In the Gospel of John, John is constantly assuming this challenge of authority, and he's drawing it out of Jesus' teaching. Regarding Jesus' authority, in John 10.30, Jesus says this. He says, I and the Father are one. Take that, Arius. Jesus and the Father, as the creed would go on to state, uh, are, are of the same essence of divinity. True God of true God. True light of true light. Jesus is in his being the authority because Jesus in his being is the eternal, preexistent Son of God himself. But in case one remains unconvinced, 
Jesus continues to talk about his relationship to authority in his incarnation. That is Jesus' ministry on earth. John 14, 10, Jesus says this, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but that the Father who dwells in me does his work. So Jesus attesting to this twofold instance of authority. He is the authority because he himself shares of divinity with the Father. But then more than that, his act is not only Jesus as the authority, but it's Jesus as the authority affirmed by God the Father who is the authority and worshiped and celebrated with the Spirit who himself is also the authority. And the authority of Jesus is of serious significance to those who wish to be saved because if Jesus is not God, then we have no hope before God. So it's not that these men, it's not that you would want proof of Jesus's authority. It's that these men ask a legitimate question in an illegitimate way. And the illegitimate way is not how they phrase the words, but the illegitimate way is the posture of their hearts. They don't want to know the answer. That's what Jesus's reply exposes. Listen to their hardness of hearts in verses, hardness of heart in verses three through seven. Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? As they discussed it with one another, or and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so the challenge of Jesus' question was simple, and it relates to a man named John the Baptist. If you were with us when we began the book of Luke, we learn about John the Baptist in the opening chapters of Luke. He was a prophetic forerunner to Jesus' ministry. Before there was the miraculous birth of Jesus uh, in the Virgin Mary's womb, there was the miraculous birth of John in the barren Elizabeth's womb. And what John came to do was to prepare a way for the Lord. Like headlights tell us a car is coming, John the Baptist was telling us that Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of God, was coming. And John's message was, because the car is coming, get out the way. In other words, his message, repent for the kingdom of God is near, was a sign that because of what was coming was the substance, the source of light itself. You needed to come to this Jesus. You needed to respond to his person through faith and repentance. And the people, as we see in this text, marveled at John. They loved John. And so now we see the problem that the Pharisees have when Jesus asks them this question. If they say that John was a legitimate prophet, then they have a problem. And the problem is, they're not listening to him. If they say that John was in fact from heaven, and John says, well, worship Christ, follow Christ, he is the Messiah, then they would not be heeding heaven's message. But if they said John was merely a man and not a prophet, they would also be in trouble, though not from God's perspective, but from the people's perspective. These crowds of Jews following Jesus, remember he has this entourage going into Jerusalem, they loved John. They believed that John was a true prophet because he was a true prophet. And these crowds would do what ought to be done. Were there to be a religious leader who tried to disobey God's prophet, they would want to remove them 
from positions of leadership. They would want to even, as they say here, kill them. So to boil it down, their decision was this. Either admit that you should obey God and believe in Jesus, or get stoned, or be killed. That was the decision they made. And the amount of consideration they put to this decision shows us the stubbornness of sin, doesn't it? Death is a pretty good motivator. But even fear of death is not a big enough motivator to overcome our blindness of heart. And how often in our own lives, it's hard to distinguish the call to obey and the call to die. We sometimes fear obeying God more than we even fear the premise of death. And part of that is just sin. But part of that is because what we'll see as the events of Jerusalem begin to unfold is that to obey is to die. It's to die to yourself. It's to submit yourself to the authority of another person who is Jesus Christ. And that's what causes these men to huddle up and deliberate. And it's what causes us to do the same when we begin to mull over the cost of obedience and any other result. But regardless of how deep our huddle is, regardless of how many voices that are there, it doesn't really matter, does it? You may not want to acknowledge that Jesus is the authority of God. You may want to assume that you have the ability to rule and reign in your own life. You may wish that you can establish yourself as an authority, but at the end of the day, you're still under an authority, and it's not you. We see this in the text, don't we? While these men want to buck the rule of Jesus, they're actually under the rule of something else. Did you see it? It's all over in this text. They're under the rule of the fear of man. At the beginning, they fear the crowds. At the end, they fear the crowds. These men show the battle that each of us have in our hearts. We will either fear God as the authority or we will fear man as the authority. That's the problem of authority. You cannot escape it. You just get to choose which authority you're under. You will be ruled by Jesus or you will be ruled by man. And here we see what the fear of man produces. More fear, more terror, more paranoia. Why? Because man is not a good authority. Is there anybody in here wearing bell-bottoms today? It was totally ruined my illustration, but let's just check. No one's wearing bell-bottoms? You're wearing, we have one person wearing bell-bottoms. Okay, Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine up. No. Uh, so the, the reason why most of you, thanks for ruining it, are not wearing bell-bottoms is because there's a chance that people would laugh at you. Not you. We love you. We're so glad you're here. I will wear bell-bottoms next week. No, I won't. But in spirit, I will. I will. We understand that you might look out of place wearing bell-bottoms. Now, why does this dear sister and everyone in the 1970s wear bell-bottoms? Because there's a fear, if you wore dumb-looking pants like mine, that you would look out of place. We can never know what pleases man. When man says, no, 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 you belong, we never have it on good authority. Because there's going to be some cultural change, some political change, some personal change, some trivial change that what was once affirming is now no longer not. We see this all the time today of culture trying to get us to affirm one thing and we affirm that one thing in order to call off the dogs and what happens next? You don't affirm enough, right? Our flags never have enough colors on them. Our political stances are never open enough. 
Our walls are never big enough. Our boundaries are never invisible enough. Man is a terrible authority. And the result is that we can never be sure that we have peace when man is in charge. Consider even how the leaders respond at the close of our passage today. In verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that's Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Brothers and sisters, you will either fear God or you will fear man. You will either find man as the authority and the result is compounding fear and slavery or you will fear God as the authority. But the Bible says this is the beginning of wisdom. The problem of authority is that you cannot escape it. We will always be ruled or governed by a fear of man or a fear of God and the cycle will not stop unless something happens. For those who often feel this, for those who feel there is no peace, there is no comfort, for those who wrestle to find any sort of certainty, what Jesus adds in verse 8 is probably the last thing you want to hear. You cannot answer this question, so neither will I tell you by whose authority I do these things. He conceals. But look at what happens in the very next verse. Verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. To the stubborn and obstinate, Jesus conceals, I will not tell you. But to those who are sincerely seeking, what does he do? He begins to tell them. Jesus says, you refuse to wrestle with the problem of authority. I'm not going to tell you anything. But then he turns to these hungry seeking people who are hanging on the preaching of his gospel and he tells them a parable. And therefore, what do we make of this? This is the answer. This is the answer to the question of authority. For those who rebel against God's authority, for those who wrestle with the weight of not having peace in light of a good authority, this is the parable we need to pay attention to. This is both a warning, but it is also winsome when we understand it in light of the giver. And so what does this parable show us? Well, it shows us there's no middle ground. First of all, these religious leaders tried to find a middle way. They tried to play dumb, kind of like the wicked servant did a few weeks ago. They didn't want to admit that they needed to submit to God, and they didn't want to be killed by the crowd. So what did they do? They boasted on their wonderful ignorance. (laughs) They're like, "We, we, we don't know. And they thought they'd pass the test. But Jesus shows us our second point this morning that eliminates the middle ground from all of us. And that is the problem with authority. The problem with authority. The problem of authority is that we cannot escape it. The problem with authority is that we have made ourselves enemies with it. In other words, we are all under authority, but that could be neutral. You could be on good grounds with that authority. But what this parable goes to show is that we are not on good grounds with that authority. We have made ourselves enemies of it. And the parable opens with Jesus saying this. It says, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. This is a big theme of parables we've seen in the book of Luke. One commentator calls them parables of absence. Jesus is constantly calling us to pay attention to how people live, how they respond, and what they do when the boss is absent. Kids, Jesus here is concerned about how you act when your parents are not around. 
And for us in the church, we see that Jesus is supremely concerned with how we, God's people, are living in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In your community groups this week, I know many of you do sermon discussions. It'd be interesting for you to go back through the parables of Luke and notice how many times the basis of Jesus's parables is this waiting age that we are in. And why is he doing this? Why is he constantly focusing on this in the book of Luke? It's because he knows that the hardest time to be a Christian is always today. It's always right now, while we wait while we wait and try to be faithful to a king who has risen and ascended to the right hand of God Almighty, while we stand amidst a world that calls us to be faithful to things that are present, present comforts, present pleasures, present immediacy, this age will test your faith. Do not be deceived. Jesus wants you to know that. But he wants you to have it on good authority that we know what to do in light of it. There is a war for your soul today, a war of authority, and it does you well to pay attention to Jesus' words if you wish to find peace at the end of it. And that's what this parable goes to show us. As was custom during this time, the master let out his vineyard to workers who were to keep the vineyard and the fruit in the place of the master, and what typically happened is what was requested here. The time of the season for grapes would come, and he would ask like a sample cup a little Costco sample cup to just give me a taste of my fruit so I know the quality of the crop that's to come. He's not coming and seeking to take the vineyard in whole yet. He just wants a taste. But it's in this moment of requesting a taste that things go very wrong. We read this parable in verses 10 through 18. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so here the problem of authority is answered. Pay heed to your own heart here. The problem is not that we do not know on whose authority anyone comes. Did you notice that? The tenants working the vineyard knew whose authority these servants came with. We know in a Romans 1 sense, it is ingrained in our hearts we look at the sky and we can't fly. When we look at the stars and we can't count them. We try to learn algebra and we can't do it. We come to the reality that we are not the authority. There is someone and something bigger than us. The problem is not that we don't know it. The problem is that we war against it and we will not accept it. You see, these men saw the servants who came 
and they rejected it. And in a scandalous sign of disgrace, each treatment of subsequent servants that came got more and more depraved. They were more and more emboldened in their evil arrogance, culminating in the one final messenger. The owner of the vineyard sees the disrepair and he sends his beloved son. The word beloved carries with it all the things we would want it or we would expect it to have. This was the cherished, treasured, and most trusted extension of the owner's authority. His mind said, certainly they will not kill him. He is not a servant. He is the son. But they did. And they did it, if you notice in the text, because of what? Because they knew who he was. And they knew his relationship to authority. They said, behold, here is the heir. Let us kill him and take the inheritance. What we just read earlier in Exodus, you shall not covet another man's wife or his male servant or his ox. Here these men coveted the inheritance of God. And they wanted it. So they had to kill the heir to take it. They wanted all the blessing of being a son, so the son had to die. And so they schemed and executed their plan. In Exodus 21 and 22, we see why the Jews responded so viscerally. Jesus says, will the master not come and destroy these servants and give it to another? They say, surely not. It was an emphatic uh, response to it. And that's because in Exodus 21 and 22, we see laws uh, describing the mistreatment of slaves and servants in the Old Testament. And that was treated very seriously. More than that, we see that what happens if you just had a rogue ox who gored somebody else's ox, the amount of restitution you would have to do to make that situation right. Here, these men didn't accidentally gore an ox nor did they even merely kill a servant. They killed the son of the owner. They knew this was out of place. And so when they say, surely not, they're not saying, no, 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 no owner would ever do that. They're responding to the whole premise of the parable. No people would ever be this depraved for this to ever happen. This is unfathomable. This is outrageous. May it never be so. And so in that moment, Jesus knows he has them. Look at verse 19. It says, he looked straight at them and said, why then do you reject me? Quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, the stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And look at what happens next in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. The same men, the same men who immediately discerned how terrible and vile it was for tenants to kill the beloved son. How do their destruction would have been on account of such treachery. They sought to kill the only beloved son of God because they perceived the parable was about 
them. In other words, they understood the authority and they hated it. The prophets had come to the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament, just like the servant, and they didn't listen. John had come to prepare a way for the Lord, just like the servant, and they didn't listen. But here the beloved son of God had come by the will of the father, and what did they set out to do? To kill the heir, to murder the son. Friends, this is why our silence on the question of authority will not hold up in court. There is no middle ground. And we see the tragic ending experientially for you and for me here. These men refuse to see their hostility towards God, but what does it produce at the end? Murderous thoughts and terrifying fear. Their heart was consumed with wickedness to kill, and their experience was that they feared to be killed. They were feared to be killed by the people. They rejected Jesus. He is hashtag not their rabbi, but what did it produce? Fear, terror, because they refused to acknowledge Christ as ruler. They sold everything to be ruled by the people. They were captive to it. We can reject Jesus, but we will always be held captive to something. And it will always bring us terror. It will always bring us slavery. There will be no freedom. There will be no peace. There will be no relief for those who reject Jesus. We are all destined for this dilemma of authority. We will all either be under crushing fear of God or constant submission to man's authority. But the Bible gives us another way. We can accept God as our authority, but with that comes a problem too, doesn't it? That is that we realize we have abused the authority. That if he is the authority, we're in trouble. When Peter preaches in Acts 2, 22, he says this, and listen to how he ties the death of Jesus to specific people. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In Eden, in the first vineyard, Adam rebelled against the good and loving authority of God and took the fruit. And every child of Adam born since then, because Adam took the fruit, we have taken the son. The juice that ran down Eve's mouth is the blood that now stains our hands. We sinful in unbelief, we have rejected the stone, but make no mistake, that stone is the cornerstone. It is the headstone. Jesus is the most significant authority, the point of division, the dividing line of all human history. And what will the Lord do when he comes back to see what his tenants have done? He will come and destroy those tenants. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. This crushing doctrine of eternity in hell is weighty, it is real, and it is coming. 
It is shocking to read of what Jesus says he's going to do to destroy the wicked. But remember what we just read in the end of chapter 19, right before we get here, Jesus, Luke tells us in verse 47 that these men, these sinful men were seeking to destroy Jesus. Sinners had destruction in their heart first. You see, judgment isn't a God problem. Judgment is a man problem. It is because we in our hearts have sought to destroy, have sought to rebel, have sought to take, have coveted the air, that on account of that, judgment comes. Jesus, the cornerstone, is coming back, and we have caused him death. It is as one old hymn says, "'Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. We put Jesus on the cross. But that is not the end of Christian hymnody because it is not the end of the Christian story. Just as the Scottish hymn writer wrote that hymn, there are other hymns where Christians can sing of the master coming back and they take a different tone. Consider this hymn. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Brothers and sisters, what stands betwixt these two? In this story, when the master comes back and that trump shall descend and, or the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, it will not be well unless something else happens. How can it be? How can it be that such rebels, such murderers, such abusers as us might see the cornerstone we have rejected and say, it is well. On whose authority can we claim that? By making up our minds right now, about the person and work of Jesus. This is our final point this morning. This is how we become people under authority. Right now, though we have stumbled, all of us, in different ways, the stone has not yet fallen. The owner has not yet returned. We must make up our minds about Jesus's authority and we must do it quickly. We make decisions like this all the time. A year from now, you're going to be called to make a decision on who you believe to be fit to be the next president of the United States. At some point in their life, any spouse had to make a decision in their minds about who they would marry. In 1776, the 13 colonies had to make a decision about the authority of Britain. In 1517, Martin Luther had to make a decision about the Catholic Church. In 325 AD, St. Nick and the other faithful saints at Nicaea had to make a decision regarding Arius. In Luke 2019, the scribes and religious leaders had to make up their mind about Jesus, and so do you today. The preaching of the gospel is not a trifling matter. What you believe about Jesus as the authority is not inconsequential to your life. In the parable, Jesus is uh, in Jesus' parable, the tenant's view of the beloved son was the single most definitive feature of their whole life. 
But this life is not a parable. This hell is not a mere literary tool used to cause fear. And Jesus looks directly at these men in verse 19 and he says, reject me to your peril. Be wise this very moment about the issue of authority. And notice who he's talking to. He's talking to religious leaders. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to the pastors. He's talking to the church members. He's talking to the Sunday school teachers. He's talking to you and me. And if that doesn't give us a sort of shiver in our own souls, then you do not believe it. But if you do, and if we fear him, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember, this whole challenge began as Jesus was preaching the gospel. And it is the gospel that was interrupted that is now here applied. It is the preaching of the gospel which resolves all of our fears in the fear of God. The gospel says that Jesus has died because of sinners. But the gospel says that Jesus has also died for sinners. The cross condemns us all. But because Jesus is the authority to save, it also saves all who come to him in faith. John Stott says it this way. He says, before we can see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. In the book of 1 Samuel, we see the people have realized that they made a mistake. They realize some chapters later that in asking for a human king, they rejected God as king. They realize they made a grievous error, that they rebelled against God. But look at what Samuel says to them in 1 Samuel 12, verses 20 through 22. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. Because of Christ, we can say, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. When we are convicted of our sin, the most natural response to a holy God is to flee from him. It is to get out of the way. The car is coming. But Jesus has shown us that the safest way to get out of the way is to come back to the way. The safest way is to come back and to repent. And what uh, Samuel is assuming is what Jesus is proving. And that is that when you encounter the fear of God and you understand not the grace of Jesus, you will run to others endlessly and you'll find more fear and you'll find more emptiness and it will solve nothing. But to come back to the one whom you put on the cross is to come back to the one who is able to save. And what is your hope? even in 1 Samuel, that because of his great name, he is going to make you into a people 
What is the hope of Luke chapter 20? Though destruction comes, what is he going to do? The vineyard is going to be taken away and given to others. Brothers and sisters, the son has died, but the inheritance lives. And to whom does it go? To the ones who fear the Lord, to the ones who come in humble submission, confessing their wrongs to him. You see, this parable shows a father who did not know his son would die. But in triune unity, it so pleased the son of God to be sent by the father of God so that through his murder, the wretched sinner might be freed from the authority of sin. We are condemned because the son has died, but we are also saved because the son has died. Jesus took it willingly. And so now we bring him our brokenness of heart and we ask that we might be broken now in this life by his mercy instead of being broken later by his wrath. Jesus is the dividing line of all history. He is big. He has really died. He has really risen again. He has really been sinned against. He will really come back and a sword will emanate from his mouth and it will separate the goats from the sheep, the righteous from the unrighteous. But dear burdened sinner, come to this Jesus. Come and see that the very cross that condemns is also the cross that bore the Christ that saved. Come to him, come to the cornerstone. Let those who have stumbled stay on their knees and repent. He is the authority, whether you realize it or not. He is the cornerstone. He is the Christ. He is the people-making, sin-forgiving king. So how then, if he is our authority, do we live? How do we live as people who are under authority by grace? People who once stumbled, but who are now saved. Well, consider in closing the words of Paul in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. From a body of conspiring tenants working for hate, the blood of Christ, the cornerstone, turns us into a body working together in love to build up each other into the head who is Christ. This today, this church, how you respond here, how you live throughout the week, how you call others to the same foundation that saves, this is how we live under the good authority of Jesus. May Jesus rule in this church to such an end because it is well with our souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for sparing not the weight of sin so that we might turn in a proper weight of worship. Where affections for God are dim, where gratitude for Jesus is slight, an understanding of sin is equally weak. But when we see what our sins have done, when we see our rejection of authority, then we turn to the God who has taken on flesh to save us, 
The same authority which could be rightfully just in condemning everyone has sought to save those who come to him through faith. And so let us worship these people. Let us produce fruit of worship. Let us cherish the inheritance which is ours through the death of the Son that has been redeemed by faith in the gospel. And Lord, may we as the church grow into Christ who is the cornerstone forever and ever. Amen.